Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The Ringer's got a brand new show out now about NFL player Cam Newton called The Cam Chronicles. We'll be releasing new episodes every Monday for the next six weeks, but you can binge all six episodes right now for free on Spotify. Here's a quick trailer. From The Ringer, I'm Tyler Tons, host of the new podcast series, The Cam Chronicles. NFL star Cam Newton has always been a complex figure. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. The Ringer NFL Show presents Cam Chronicles. Listen to the full series now on Spotify. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use the music in the introduction. Uh, we have a repeat guest. He was on, I would say, a couple months ago. I've just lost total track of time in quarantine, but we have Eddie Huang. I don't know, polymath. He's done just a little bit of everything. You should listen to that podcast because we talked about our relationship, which now goes back several years. And we've really made our peace on a variety of things. And I'm glad to call him a friend and someone that I really respect because he's so forward-thinking, so smart, so articulate in a variety of things that uh, I'm glad that we have him representing so much of an Asian-American culture. And I wanted to get his insights as to what was going on in Taipei during quarantine because life as we know it is pretty much the same there and here in the United States, this is a nightmare scenario with COVID. And I hope everyone is wearing masks and social distancing as much as possible so we can get closer to living life like Eddie is in Taipei. But, you know, listen to that podcast. It's a good one. But Chris Ying and I were, you know, logged on. What we do is we do the Zoom thing and we're recording and we're waiting. And Eddie had confirmed and Eddie is very punctual. So we just knew that there was just Taipei, things lost in translation. And we texted him. He said, oh, he, he'll be, be here right away on the podcast. So we just kept on chatting and chatting and chatting. And that conversation we thought was so good. Like so many times the pre-conversation and the post-conversation to a podcast is, is really the best conversation, in my opinion. And that's something that I am trying to just have normally where it's more relaxed and you're not thinking about what to say per se. It's just free-flowing, good content, in my opinion. And we were just having this conversation, me and Chris Ying, about Eddie and just all the other things happening. And we thought we would release that pod as a podcast today and release the conversation with Eddie this coming Monday. So shout out to Eddie. We invited Eddie because he called us out on... Um, the Momofuku Chili Crisp that Momofuku announced for not representing Laogan Ma, the, probably the preeminent chili sauce. And by no means were we trying to disrespect it. We just didn't get the chance to explain the story. And I felt very confident that once Eddie heard the story, we'd be on the same page. Uh, simpatico and everything is copacetic. But he has some incredibly good points, and we'll get to that on Monday. But... This conversation is Chris Yang and I just shooting the shit. So right now, we're waiting for Eddie, who's calling in on Zoom from Taipei, Taiwan. And right now, Chris Yang is looking at my profile photo on Zoom, which is odd job carrying golf clubs. <laughs> I didn't even know you were gone, man. Yeah. I thought you t you just taken this call outside with your golf clubs over your shoulder. And we were talking about how Chris has a four-month-old now. Mm -hmm. And he's got to get out of the bassinet, and he's sleeping okay. And Hugo is now 16 months plus. And how I would say between myself, my wife, and my grandmother, my, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, I probably spend in 24 hours 90 minutes to 120 minutes a day in charge of Hugo and it just like, I don't work out anymore. <laughs> like over the last three weeks, it is just like increased. Cause now he's running around. 
<laughs> and it's just the concentration that you need to focus on anything that he does, right? He climbs up on a chair. You're like, I have to watch every movement to see if he falls over or like hurts his neck or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm constantly being judged by Grace and my mother-in-law to see if I'm like doing anything wrong. How much of that is in your head though? How much of that judgment is, is real and how much are you just judging yourself there? It's always real. <laughs> Everything. Every judgment is real in my life. Everything. <laughs> Everything. And uh, I just wanted to give a massive shout out to single mothers and single parents out there. Yeah. They don't have to be just a mother. I daily think about, oh my God, how does anyone do this by themselves? And so many people do. I think it's dumbfounding as to how anyone can do it. I really have no fucking idea how anyone could do it. And it's something I always knew was difficult, but I have three other people helping. I have my wife and the in-laws helping out. Mm-hmm. And each one of us, by the end of the day, is like, fuck, this is so tiring. <laughs> and that's just one kid. You got two. I don't know how. I just don't understand. Well, you know that thing where, like, if you're, let's say you're, like, running or exercising in some way and you you're out of shape and you look at your watch and you're like oh my god i must have been running for 40 minutes and you look at your watch and it's like you've been running for 37 seconds like sometimes i'll take the kids i'll hold them and i'll be like oh man okay i put in my 25 minutes here like i gotta give them back to you and then my wife will be like you held him for four seconds yeah like, what, what, exactly. what, <laughs> yeah what are you doing 100 percent. i i empathize and um you know when I'm playing with Hugo, now that I like lock the doors so he can't run out and uh, it's just us. And then sometimes he sits in his chair <laughs> and I just pray that he will sit silently and stay there <laughs> for more than 30 seconds. I was like, maybe he's just going to learn on his own before potty training or anything. How to just sit silently and to meditate and just to be calm. Something uh-huh. that as an old man doesn't even know how to do at the age of 43. <laughs> You're hoping for like the the monkeys in a room with typewriters thing. Just like if I just give him enough opportunities, he'll just he's so close because he learn. likes sitting down. He likes climbing up in his chair, and he's just is like. But five seconds later, he's like, <laughs> "This sucks." But I will tell you, like, I think I might have sent you a video. He's figured out how to turn off like the light switch as a yep. command. I just don't even understand how he did that. I don't know. <laughs> Like one time he came back to me, he turned off the lights and he comes back to me. I said, Hugo, you forgot to turn back on the lights. And he giggles and he runs back and he turns the lights back on. I'm like, how? Yeah. You've said this a couple of times, like not, not this story, but you've said this and I haven't really talked to you about it, but I, I agree with you that like that crazy sensation or realization when they are absorbing something and learning it and then applying it again, like down the road. I know that's just what human life is, but it is crazy to see it. It's crazy to see this thing that did not seem capable of absorbing any information suddenly absorb what's not even something you're trying to teach them, right? I'm sure Hugo has just seen stuff you've done or Grace has done. Yeah, no, like now he puts a spatula in his hand and he knows he runs to a pot and he stirs. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, do not do this. (laughs) Do better in school. (laughs) But I will say as tough as things have been, and there have been some pretty what felt like bleak bleak moments the only thing sometimes that really gets me through as cliche as it sounds is like oh there's this guy you yeah. know yeah and i just don't want to fuck him up like my dad fucked me up i know <laughs> i know i know you know it's like wow freud was so right everything is about your parents yeah i mean you and i were having this conversation yesterday and just like it's that thing where the most complex seeming aspects of your psychology can be whittled down to a pretty simple line. You know, my dad did this. I mean, there are a lot of things like I think I've repressed with my dad. I I was telling you this the other day. I think I did. Like when the age of 18, I got, you know, you had to take your test to go to college. Mm -hmm. And I got positive result for tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. Which you had never told me before. Yeah. And I haven't told anybody this ever. Grace doesn't even know. And I remember being like, what are you talking? I have tuberculosis? And they're like, no, 
it is in your system. It's in your body, but it hasn't come like developed fully yet. But, you know, it's not, you're not infectious, but it could happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, that was like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. That was a life altering moment because mm-hmm. it's like, y- all I knew about tuberculosis was like, that was like the Westerns. And that's what people did when they moved to like Colorado. So they could breathe better. I, and I, this is pre Google. Mm-hmm. You know, what? <laughs> you know, there was nowhere to go. So immediately, I, I, the first person I go to is my dad's store. And I, I tell him what he did, what happened. And he yells at me. What did I he was yell, like, yell at you for having? Who, for, yeah. He's yeah. like, so what? Oh, <laughs> I was like, I was like, listen, I spent a lot of time about that. But like, I think he's like saying in Korea, everybody has it. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm like, you don't have it. Like, why do I have it? How the fuck do I have this? Mm. And, you know, needless to say, that was like a, a pretty rough patch. And there are times when, you know, Hugo might do something and he's a kid. And my initial reaction is to be like, oh, wait, I can't, yeah. I can't communicate like my dad. But that's a crazy fucking way to talk to someone when you tell them, hey, dad, this really troublesome thing is happening to me. And to get, you know... That was fucking crazy. That day was crazy. Yeah. But I spent a lot of time trying to think about that as to, obviously, it triggered something in him. Yeah. But this is not a fully formed thought, but you spent a lot of time in in recent years trying to put yourself in your father's shoes to think about what may have caused him to say or do things that you didn't understand at the time or maybe you took as hostile, like, say, yelling at you for having tuberculosis you know there might be a point where you are i mean i I guess the technical term is like being died i don't remember it's like you tested you had you had tb like dormant or something but there's a certain point where you don't have to always go there it's okay for you to own just that like it hurt you yeah i know this is all the part of the grieving process i know and yeah of course it it sucks it sucks but that was crazy. I had to take a pill every day for 365 days, like a giant pill, <laughs> and get oh. blood tests every month. It was so crazy, and it fucked up my liver. The medicine had like a side effect on my liver, which is why I have sort of like issues today. It's, I mean, did you not have you not said something about it, dude? I totally forgot just... about this. I totally forgot about not forgot. Like I, I just never thought about it. But that was like your freshman year of college, right? Like when you Summer had this? before my freshman year, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you didn't tell your friends, right? That was was that like No, they were like, what's this? These pills are massive, man. <laughs> You're just like they're uh, steroids. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I understand, man. And I understand the, the what happens when you when you find yourself in find yourself saying something, you know, talking about the way you're you're worried about that experience of growing up with the way your father raised you transferring to the way you raise Hugo. And I, I understand that completely. I'm learning, and, and I'm learning how to forgive. Right. And I'm really trying to put myself in his shoes in a variety of ways. And sometimes I come out angrier, right. When I think about these things and sometimes I can learn, I think learning for me to forgive is in crucial for learning for other people to forgive me too. Right. So yeah, it's been crazy. And all this time, whenever I'm playing with Hugo, it's what I think about. Like all these moments. I'm like, man, if I aggregate all these things in his life up until when he's an adult and he moves away, it's like, these are all going to have monumental impacts on this guy. Yeah, they are. The cumulative effect of your being his father is going to have a huge effect on him. But you're so conscious of it. And that does not to say you don't lapse. And, And I will say I've had in the three and a half years that I've been a father, there have been a few moments where that I've just not been proud, where I've caught myself doing things my dad would do to me. I've I've snapped a couple of times and yelled, you know, she doesn't want to eat something. I spent a lot of time cooking it. I I don't feel like my wife is helping me get her to eat it. And I freak the fuck out and, and scream and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there's other times where I'll just like mutter under my breath. And I just catch myself doing these things that were the hallmarks of my dad when he was younger and raising us. And it sucks, man. It sucks. But like, if you're learning to forgive, you got to learn to forgive yourself a yeah. little bit too, you know? 
you know, if you're listening to this, this is how Chris and I talk, literally. Any, <laughs> this is just us talking. Um, well, this is us just literally waiting for our work to start. <laughs> but this is how we always just talk anyway, which is on like a daily basis. I have uh, these continued leadership classes that I, I've missed a, a couple weeks with uh, Marshall Goldsmith and mm-hmm. Mark Thompson. And there was a, uh, a very successful person that's sharing something and crazy accomplishments, all of these things. And she has uh, two college-age sons. And they were having dinner. And her son basically said, I hate the negativity in this asshole. You guys are all assholes. You know, you know how you can be, once you get to college, you feel like you can say the things you've always wanted to say to your parents. <laughs> right. And you feel like you're, you're somehow like equipped to do so because you've had like a semester of college under your belt. I, I feel that. I've done that. And like, she was like, fuck. That moment where, and you know, my friendships are like this for sure. Friendships are one thing, but also family where all you do when you think about it with my own brothers and sisters, you just try to hurt someone's feelings. <laughs> You just try to be not nice. At least that's always been in my family in so many ways. It's it's like, yeah, I love you, but I because I love you, I can tell you something terrible. Mm-hmm. Or I don't have to be that nice to you because I love you. You're my blood. Mm-hmm. And she was basically explaining this, and I was like, fuck, I got to fix this. Because it's always about being the funnier person, having the last word, being the the comedian that you know had the best zinger. Is that just my <laughs> life? But that's kind of your life too. I mean, I think that where you and I differ is maybe in some of our family dynamic, but it happens in our house for sure. I, you know what? You know what? It, it kind of dawned on me was uh, when my daughter caught on to like a different vibe with me and my family than you know my wife and her family. When she wait, was wait, like, tell the difference. Talk about the differences. Well. With my mom, I, I because I love her so much and we're so close, like, I always take, like, an exasperated tone with her, you know? I, we're always sort of giving each other grief. She's always giving me a lot of shit. I'm always giving her a lot of shit. That's just, like, how it works. We're just, that's our dynamic. And the thing is, like, that's how I am with my my family. And, like, you know, I, I, I tease my wife a lot. We have, like, a, a really banter-filled relationship. But I realize, like, when I do it in the presence of her family, when I'm, like, giving my wife a hard time or something her mom or her dad will always kind of like jump to her defense. (laughs) And I'm just like, I'm just messing around. I'm just kidding. And, you know, my daughter at one point was like, how come you're always yelling at Nai-Nai? Like my mom. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not yelling at her. We're just, this is how we are. But it started to dawn on me. I was like, oh man, this sort of like lovingly hostile energy is maybe not (laughs) how other people are. How like, I don't know, a healthy dynamic is i don't know like what is it in your family I actually know, like i think asian households are just so weird to me. <laughs> man you know almost daily i tell my in-laws i'm so glad that you are you and not my parents <laughs> <laughs> and i love my mom you know and my dad but they're just so different they come from a different time when korea wasn't war-torn mm-hmm. they're like 20 years younger and they're not from North Korea. Mm-hmm. They're both born uh, in uh, Daegu and in, in like port cities south of Seoul. So I don't want to just say it's a stereotypical thing, but if you're from Korea and you people say, oh, you're from North Korea, you have a North Korean temperament, which is fiery, hot-tempered, and hmm. just like hmm. stubborn as all hell. If anyone knows me, they're like, oh, that sounds a lot like you. I was like, you should meet my fucking relatives on my dad's side. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And just the fact that they're so different. Like if you walk into a Chang household on the Chang side of the family, mm-hmm. you know that it almost feels like a grumpy Rodney Dangerfield comedy show. <laughs> Where no one's trying to make you laugh. They're just yelling. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's just a cacophony of grumbles and grunts and commands. And on my mom's side, it's very calm and it's full of laughter. And Grace's side is so quiet interesting and the beautiful thing about her father who i love dearly is he's so quiet he will not speak until he has a fully formed opinion about something Hmm. and that might take a couple weeks he just won't talk (laughs) my god he's like yoda yeah and i'm just like (laughs) my god he meditates in the morning and he does it 
two times a day religiously. He is so amazing to me. And I was like, man, if I had Grace's dad growing up, what would I be like today? Mm-hmm. And all of this has impacted me as to how I have to be in front of Hugo. Mm-hmm. And he's so helpful. And he's so loving. And he's so caring. I'm like, my God. This is like my life flashing before me. Yeah. And I'm so lucky and privileged to have him look after Hugo for two hours a day as well. Yeah. I mean, that having grandparents around right now is is incredible and i know what you're saying like was that jarring for you was that like a a weird sensation to go from i mean not to place any sort of judgment on on your family dynamic but like as you described it it's very different from grace's upbringing was that jarring to enter a household with a much different demeanor another asian household especially yeah. Like when you first all I want to do is please them and to show that, like, no. Because I can see when they met my parents before, we've gone on vacation a couple times, like, oh, man. <laughs> and they're so deferential to them because they're senior and, and it's very right. honorific. And once my parents or my side of the family leaves, the house gets very quiet. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Very quiet. And it, not just quiet. I'm just saying normal. Mm-hmm. And Changs, as you know, are loud. Anyone just has to hang out with me to realize not only do you breathe loud, Dave, man, you everything you do is loud. Even when I cook, Grace is like, can you just cook quietly, please? Why? When my mom cooks, Hugo's nap isn't interrupted. But when you cook, Hugo wakes up all the time. Everything is loud. <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, whenever my sister is around we will go to, and, and we were visiting with family and like some, you know, my sister more than me would, would bring some of her friends around and some not Asian people sometimes would come to our family gatherings. And there would always be this sort of talk. My sister would always say to them beforehand, just like, okay, so um, it's going to be really loud and people are going to be shouting a lot and it's going to seem like people are angry, but this is just how they are. This is just how we communicate. And people are like, okay, okay. And then as soon as as soon as you open the door, it's just like you're you're blown away by the 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 sound. And my sister jumps right in too. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know what it is, Dave. But like I'm I'm heartened to hear though that it's not it's not universally Asian family. It sounds like Grace's family is uh thoughtful and 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 serene. When quarantine, if and when it ends, and I hope that it does obviously soon, I hope that they never leave. I, I really, I just love having them in this house. I can't imagine life now without them. Hmm. And there are been, there have been weirdly benefits to quarantine is being able to see life in a way that I could never have done before because they've stayed with us like a month or two when they came. But like this stretch has been so long where we're mm-hmm. roommates, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it's like a dorm, but we spent so much time together that I enjoy it so thoroughly that I do not want them to leave. And I tell them, I was like, you cannot go back to Seattle. (laughs) Well, it's going to be a huge, you know, we think about this too. It's going to be a huge transition for Hugo too, to go from having them every single day for however long it's going to be to not. Yeah. Well, you know, incredibly hard. At least Keith has Ruby. Yeah. I'm worried because Hugo, when he sees someone new, he just cries. Hmm. And I know that's normal, but. Mm -hmm. I need him to be introduced to other people. So we're out here because hopefully we'll start filming anytime soon. Yeah. (laughs) And we're back in LA and I'm excited because once we're clear on quarantine and we get tested and all of these things, the first thing we're going to do is try to set up like very safe play dates. Yeah. Hopefully for Hugo, because that's actually keeping me up at night. How do I, keep him normalized in social settings. Mm-hmm. And he's still too young to be sort of verbalizing anything about like missing seeing people. But I think you should do that. Absolutely. Chang. I think you got to find another family with a, a kid, the same age and, and set up that play date. You know, we, we did it. We did it last week for the first time. And man, what was it like for Ruby? It was unfucking believable. It was unbelievable. Did she freak out? She was so happy. 
She was so happy. It was crazy, you know? Because, like, have you pictured what it's going to be like? I, You know, in my head, I know it won't play out this way, but I'm imagining, like, when a vaccine comes, it's going to be, like, the end of Independence Day, and everyone's just going to be celebrating. The whole world is going to be running out in the streets and hugging each other. And I know it's not going to be like that, but in my head, I'm thinking about what's that moment going to be when we're all released back into the world. Uh, it was like that, man. She and our, our friend's daughter, who are, you know, two months apart, <laughs> they were like hugging. <laughs> they were just like holding hands. Like these two had had traditionally actually been like pretty standoffish with one another. They had not really engaged too fully as as buddies. But like, man, they were literally hugging and just like, I don't know. They must have just been craving human contact. It was crazy. I think it's gonna bring you a lot of joy to see it when Hugo's in there with another kid. And it's just so cute. It's just so sweet. And um, man, I miss the world. I was watching. Uh, have you? I was watching Ford versus Ferrari last night. Is and it bad for me to say that I love that movie because it's too broy? <laughs> it's. I don't know, man. It's so fucking long. First of all, I do think it's amazing. I don't think it's. You know, it's pretty broy, but it's okay to like Ford versus Ferrari. But you know, it's like at one point Christian Bale's character wins a race, and everybody's celebrating, and then he's sort of like walking the streets of of France, and I'm watching this, and I'm like. I miss having beers with people. I miss going to sporting events. I miss seeing Europe. <laughs> like, I just miss the world so fucking much right now. I don't know. Ford versus Ferrari had nothing to do with it except to say, like, there were scenes of the, the life we knew. And, man, I don't know. Are you feeling that at all? I, I think about it all the time. And I think about an article that I refused to find ever again in the New York Times because it was the, she's like an epidemiologist, virologist or something that uh, accurately predicted like the first like three months. And it was like a sort of a, a medium-sized profile on her in the New York Times. And uh, again, I'm not going to give any more because I don't want people to read it because it's so depressing. <laughs> she's the best case scenario is 36 months. Yeah. And so far, everything she has said to me, and if I recall that article, has been right. So not only do we have to imagine 32 to 33 more months of this, which is like mind-numbing in its pain. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, dude. You know, there's a lot to worry about. And I was just thinking, right about now, as we're in July, right, you are, as a restaurant, you're trying to make as much money. When most restaurants are not seasonal. But even still, like from holiday season with a lull in January and February, but springtime all the way up till July, that is your your harvest season, man. Like you mm-hmm. got to get all the work in, do everything because August, September slow is a pretty slowdown. And if you have a week to a month of slowness, you prepare for that. August, September, traditionally very slow because people aren't going to restaurants. They're going on holidays or whatever. Mm-hmm. And your entire cost structure is based on how to prepare for those months. Now that everyone, and I know a lot of people are have gotten PPP, or not everybody, I should say. Let me rephrase that. The people that have gotten PPP are, I've talked to them, that a lot of them are running out because they did exactly what they needed to do was to hire back people and to run. And we knew that the government was going to fuck this up by reopening and then closing it down. Like, not a surprise. They did that again. And again, not a surprise for a journalist to say, hey, guess what? It's more expensive to reopen it up than to close. Like, again, all information yeah. that was well-known, but people didn't want to write about it. I am <clears throat> truly petrified as to what's about to happen come August, September, October. Because people are running on fumes to begin with. And now landlords have been doing rent abatement, if they have been, for a few months now. This is all going to come to a head. And if we don't get something done by the government, which I don't, I hope is going to happen, we're going to see massive closures like no one's ever seen before on the independent restaurant front. Yeah. So I, I, that's what keeps me. And this is just right now. If this continues for another year, which we can assume that it will, what do we do? How do restaurants survive? Listen, delivery sales are tough, man. We are doing it. It is. We're okay for where it is. But man, like I, we also predicted that the people that are doing delivery and had a competitive advantage, first mover advantage, that was going to slowly erode. And that's happening now. Everybody is doing it. Yeah. 
So I, I don't know what's to happen. Well, I've always taken some comfort in knowing that you are a worst case scenario guy, but I don't know if we've, if I've asked you this, but like, what was the worst case scenario that you imagined? And is this worse than that? Uh, in around January, cause you know that I follow cataclysmic events religiously. Um, <laughs> and because I was in China in SARS, I was in Shenzhen when it first happened. Mm-hmm. These are things that I always follow. Chicken flu, swine flu, N1H1, or blah, blah, blah. So that was like something that was really something I was following. I was like, oh, this is, this is going to get bad. And we started just to talk about it in the office as to what would happen as worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. And of course, come around February, we knew this was real. Early February, late January. And we were game planning as to how we could weather the storm. What wound up being, I think, for us, just the group, and I wasn't in all these meetings. This was with Marguerite and the team, and Elizabeth Crystal, the CFO. We were trying to figure out that if, in the event of a closure, we were looking at a reopening, we did scenarios of May, June, July, August, September. Worst case scenario we thought was reopening in September. Mm -hmm. That was our worst case. Anything after that was um, <laughs> unfathomable. Yeah. And that was back in February. Yeah. You, we could not project that it would go way past that. Yeah. So I know this is depressing as all hell. I'm just simply saying, like, I don't have the answer. I'm continuing to talk to, to friends. And you know what? There are some people that are doing really well. You know, I, I continue to look at what, what other cities are doing. In Chicago, I think, is doing a really good job. You know, it's incredibly sad that Blackbird, Paul yeah. Cahan, and Donnie Medea's iconic restaurant, Blackbird, closed. One of the most important restaurants in American history. We're going to be seeing these stories time and time again on a, on a rapid basis. And we need to be ready for that. And I see people that are doing a great job, right? We've talked about Eric Rivera, and he has a restaurant in Seattle called Ado, and I really admire how he's operating his his operations right now because it's it's what I know what we would be doing if we were smaller in one restaurant. And it makes me sort of be like, fuck. Like that, that's smaller nimble. And everything he's saying is 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 not something I always agree with, but I respect his viewpoints on a lot of things. And if you look at what he's doing, it is anything and everything. That's what you have to see because we don't know what's going to work. We have no idea what's going to fucking work. You got to try it all and you have to make mistakes and adapt, make mistakes and adapt. And uh, that trial and error period is what needs to happen. And I think there's too many people, too many restaurant groups that are waiting for a solution instead of going on the offensive and trying. And I think in a nutshell, that's a weird metaphor, a sad parable really of the restaurant industry and its woes the past 15 plus years we don't need to talk about all the problems of the restaurant industry. There are so many to start, but I would say one responsibility of being in the situation that we're in today that we have to own up to as a restaurant culture. And we've talked about it in this podcast is the lack of innovation, mm-hmm. the desire to maintain the status quo in any way we can, because changing it is just too fucking hard. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn hostage negotiations. You can learn screenplay. You can learn directing from the very, very best, from Aaron Sorkin, from Martin Scorsese. You can learn gardening from Ron Finley. You can learn just about everything from the masters of their field with over 75 different instructors across tons of categories. There is literally something for everyone. That's not an exaggeration. If you want to learn about something, there's probably going to be the preeminent expert in their field talking about how they learned everything and how they can teach you what they know. Obviously, I'm in the culinary profession, and I can tell you, you have Massimo Pater talking about Italian food. You have Alice Waters talking about California cuisine, Thomas Keller, Gabriel Camara, 
the great chef of Mexico City and a variety of other places. You have Aaron Franklin. That's the one that I happen to watch a lot because I think he's just a barbecue maestro and it is full. His lessons are full of tips that I always go back to. And the Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire TV. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, all of which you can explore at your own pace. Lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes in length, so they can fit into your busy schedule. Hundreds of video lessons from over 75 of the day's most brilliant minds are available anytime, anywhere, for just $180 a year with their all-access pass. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass as a Dave Chang Show listener. You'll get 15% off the annual all-access pass. 15% off. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's C-H-A-N-G. Masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off Masterclass. And now, back to the show. Can I play devil's advocate? Because we've been, we've been saying this for the entirety of quarantine now, but what if I'm a restaurant owner and I'm hearing you, Dave, and I'm saying like two things. One, I'm doing everything I can humanly do do takeout and CSA boxes or I mean like speaking of Seattle say I'm like canless where I'm just like fuck it I turned my restaurant my fine dining restaurant into a burger drive through I'm doing bingo nights we're doing CSA boxes I'm selling cocktail packages like we're doing every single thing to stay afloat but this is not the business I want to run in the long term I want to I believe that like the restaurant experience even if the industry is broken the restaurant experience is an important one, and I don't want to abandon every aspect of the old thing, Dave. Like I, I want to get back to serving customers the way that I know how and the way that I that I was trained to do it. Um, can I? Can I? Of course, I I want to give them a big hug, and of course, I'm sympathetic, and of course, I want that too. But we need to blow up that model because it ain't coming back. Yeah. As much as I want that model. It's not coming back. That is not coming back. See, I don't know that people can believe. I don't, just people. Not coming back until there's a vaccine. Yeah. Or there's herd immunity, if that's even possible. Yeah. You know me, I'm always looking at the fucking, like, the heart of darkness on this, man. Because I'm trying very hopefully to realize, like, oh, it's only bleak. Guys, like, I'm trying to truly tell you this, man. This is what I believe in. And you can tell me I'm fucking an idiot, which I am. I am trying to basically tell myself and to tell you guys that if we continue to apply the things that have been working for us in the past, we will continually butt our heads against the wall and find that it is impossible and bleak and dark. Yeah. If we try to bring it back to February of 2020, we will find the road to be impassable. You cannot do it. And I want to remind myself almost like a tattoo in memento about how stupid it is. It's like the economy stupid when Clinton was running in, in 90 or whatever it was, 92. It's like, this is not something we can control. We need to accept it. And the only thing that is possible is to dream of impossible solutions that might have seemed stupid before. And the longer we hold on to something that hopefully we will get back to in the future, the more we're going to complain. And I am complaining right now. I get it. I am as hypocritical as anyone you've ever fucking spoken to. But I, I just, I don't know. And I don't have the answers either. And that's why I am thinking about the heart of darkness here to hopefully get me to the other side. Because we need to just blow this whole thing up. When I say that, it's a euphemism, obviously. but. I think if we all collectively start to think outside the box of what it was and start to imagine what it could and should be, then, listen, the Korea made the impossible happen because they literally said, we're not going to do what we used to do in the event of a pandemic. They invented a whole new KN95 mask. They have contact tracing like you wouldn't believe. They have an Amber Alert basically for COVID-19. Like they invented all these things. That might have seemed impossible or superfluous before. The restaurant industry is a scrappy, 
and full of integrity when it's very good. And there's a true camaraderie that makes working in the business, as stupid as it is, makes it the best. And that's all I'm saying is we can't have the outliers only think outside the box here. Because fast food and the giant corporations in this industry, and listen, I know that there are people probably listening to me like, you're one of those motherfuckers. I get that. Comparatively. They are winning. They are going to fucking continue to dominate and to crush. We have nothing, we have nothing left. Our last resort is to do the crazy shit, man. Yeah. I don't know what that is. You're talking about a wartime mentality where we're talking about the existential survival of restaurants, not on the one restaurant by one restaurant level, but on the very fundamental idea that restaurants can exist level, right? Like we've got to approach this as though we are fighting this war, not for ourselves, not for our individual survival, but for the survival of our people, of our country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, I know this sounds crazy, but this is the conversation that I've been having in my mind. And I know we've talked about this a couple times over the past few months. I don't want Momofuku to perish or to not happen anymore. And I say this because I'm always talking about worst case scenario. We have options and we are doing our best. And I feel very confident as what we're going to be able to do moving forward. And we do have advantages over other people. I'm always going to speak in the most paranoid, worst case scenario kind of way. So please take a lot of what I say as a grain of salt when I raise the alarm. This is just my natural default setting as Chris and those people around me know, is that I will never see anything good. I will always see the fucking bad. Not just the bad, the very worst scenario. (laughs) And work from there. But in the event, and this is how I logically process this through, in the event that it does end, and we only have so many bullets and resources left to help this industry, if Momofuku doesn't survive, or restaurants like that, let's just say Nobu doesn't survive, is the world going to mourn its loss, truly? Why? It's a meme. The food has been knocked off a million different fucking ways. It has survived in so many different restaurants, in so many different concepts. That in some ways, Nobu is not needed. As much as I think Nobu is the fucking, like, sometimes the Messiah, right? He's so fucking good. I'm, not, I'm just, again, putting this into, a, like, an equation, a totally objective equation. Momofuku has been knocked off a thousand different ways. Is it needed? Yes, it is needed. It's under, but when you look at it, the worst-case scenario, in the very, very extremes, how necessary is it? How necessary is a three mission star restaurant? How necessary is another burger place? How necessary is another ramen shop? How necessary is another artisanal pizza shop? What we need to do in our collective communities is assess, you know, as a side note, early on when Italy was going through their horrible COVID-19 problems and the hospitals were being overloaded, that's when we were talking about the trolley car problem. This has never changed the trolley car problem. They were like, hey, we have three very sick patients. We have one hospital bed. We got to choose one that's going to survive. That's tough. These are more dilemmas. And nobody ever wants to make those decisions. But on an existential higher level, if we think about the worst case scenario, and the reason I... I don't enjoy thinking about this because you know I like self-flagellation because it sort of feels good for me because that pain, we don't need to go down that road. But if I think about this, it certainly tells you what's important. Life and death is a clear separator of the husk, right? Mm -hmm. And if you had to choose in your community, what are the 10 restaurants And again, like I'm not trying to sound like a sociopath and diminish every other restaurant. This is not that. Please, I don't want any restaurant to go out of business. I don't. I don't. This is more of like me framing in my mind like how to prioritize certain things. 
And I am putting my own work and my own restaurant group that I'm part of through the crucible as well. And I've come out the other side being like, I don't know. It's really hard, man. It's really hard. It's really hard to think in these terms because we've never, I don't think in our entire lifetimes, at least years in mind, we've ever had to think about things. We've never been forced by the world around us to think on this, again, existential level. We've never had to make these kinds of choices. And I don't know that we're equipped to, or maybe we're definitely not equipped to, as we're seeing. We're not equipped to make these decisions or ask these questions that explore the possibility or embrace the possibility that our lives will never be the same, that they might be worse. You know, I had that thought recently where I was like, for the entire first three decades of my life, I had an assumption in the back of my head that life always got better, which is just an incredible, it's problematic on so many levels. It's super privileged and, and just silly, but like, in more poetic terms, it's like when MLK said, you know, the arc of history bends toward good. I always just assumed that things would get better. <laughs> Uninterrupted, life gets better, life gets longer. But we're forced to consider the possibility that that's not true. But you're, what you were just saying reminds me, I never really asked you what you thought about this. You know, in your head, you're doing this hypothetical of what 10 restaurants do I need to save? Uh, here where I live, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife did that exercise and they gave $100,000 to their 10 restaurants to help them survive. What did you think of that? Honestly, fuck Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fuck, you know, fuck Mark Zuckerberg, generally speaking, like, but like, like, just fuck him. Like, I, that's a terror. I just, now I can't even think about it straight. Now all I give a shit about is punching him in the face. I'm so mad. It's pretty bad, man. Sponsored, sponsored by Facebook. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, truly, that was, that's the crazy thing, man. Like, you're doing it as an intellectual exercise. Mark Zuckerberg was just like, eh, I'm in charge. I'm going to choose the 10 restaurants that deserve to survive. And I don't want to make any judgment on any of those restaurants, but like. Again, I don't want any of this stuff, but it's more of, if you are a family business, you have to start to put yourself through the crucible. Why should you survive? Mm-hmm. it's a horrible thing to ask oneself. And you have all the reasons to say yes, but are your reasons enough to have someone that doesn't care about the restaurant industry to say, yes, I want to save you. I want, you know what I mean? Like we need to start to think about it in different ways other than just, it's about me. You know, Dan Giusti, when he was on, said the most important thing, he's like, fuck restaurants. Yeah. You're like, you know what's important? Kids and the seniors and the people that are feeding community, do I need to have a beautiful 18-course degustation? Of course, I'd like that. Is it necessary? No. I, you know, the, again, the hard thing is I think that a lot, of these, a lot of the restaurant owners we're talking about believe the same thing. But what are they going to do? Stop trying to keep their restaurant afloat? Should they just close? You know, like I, I don't. Well, so listen, we're not, what I'm saying is there's not going to be a choice. Yeah. There's not going to be a choice. There's only so much money to go around. And by the end of July, if they don't expend the $600, because we definitely need universal basic income, if they don't continue to support the people that need the money and the undocumented workers that are getting none, we are in a world of hurt because there's only so much money to go around. There was already too many places. So the question I'm asking has to happen because if we, if we spread it out too much, it's not going to be enough to save the ones that need to, because there are people that are going to crush regardless. Right. And I'm not just, there are independent operators that are doing really well. Mm -hmm. Right. And they may not need help because they are restaurant operators that are thriving. Well, what about the people that do need the help that just do have like something working against them, a physical problem in the space or, you know, their, one of their, their, their wife had cancer you know, or whatever. And things have just gone against them and a break didn't go their way and they they need the support. We need to funnel our support to help the restaurants instead of diversifying over every restaurant. And just to let everyone know, like, again, is this going to happen 100%? No. But is it an interesting thought exercise? I believe so because I'm doing it myself. Yeah. The hard thing is it is happening on some level, like you said, like, 
people are making judgment calls about who deserves what and you know you see the PPP stuff and and who's who's applying and who's getting in trouble for applying and all of this kind of thing and and it's become i mean this is the problem when when these decisions get fully placed in in the hands of the people when it's just a completely a free for all is it pits people against each other in a really intense way but you know fundamentally i agree with what your 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 original point is just like we've got to do this really hard exercise to scare us into thinking outside the box mm-hmm. that's what you're saying yeah fundamentally you've got to think about this because we it's got the to only push ourselves to... yes we have to 100 i'm i'm thank you chris for summarizing my long-winded fucking explanation <laughs> effectively it's to think about something so uncomfortable to push us, uh, ourselves out of our comfort zone so we can think outside the box you know, ironically, Dave, we've been talking now for like an hour, and this is like an ideal introduction into the conversation we wanted to have with Eddie, <laughs> who I, I can only imagine fell asleep in Taiwan because it's midnight now. Or, or he's having a good time, and you know what, Eddie? <laughs> I have nothing but love because I've really grown to respect and admire everything you've done because we've talked about it in the past, and we've mutually disliked each other, and I, I have uh, grown to really appreciate who he is and what he stands for and the clear vision he has in how he articulates what needs to happen. And we need more diversity and whatever he wants to do, Eddie's king and he can do it. And (laughs) I'm sure there was something and, but I wanted to have Eddie on because I want to get an update because if you follow his Instagram, it is infuriating as all hell. (laughs) Because? Because he's having the time of his fucking life in Taipei. Yeah. It is, it is fucking infuriating. It looks and so fun. And he's eating like a goddamn champion. <laughs> and I, I just, I'm like, oh, he's living normal life and I'm not. And I'm so goddamn jealous. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, we'll get him on here. We'll get and him on here. The other reason why is, you know, what I always appreciate about Eddie is just because we have this uh, appreciation and friendship and I would say we're sort of homies. And I think we always were, but there was just miscommunication. Is that he will always hold me accountable. And one of the things he did was put me on full blast on the Momofuku Chili Crisp. And I did not get the opportunity to talk about it on a pre-opening diaries. I did not get the opportunity to post about it. And uh, I didn't even know Momo was going to uh, talk about it yet or sell it yet. Uh, It's hard. There's miscommunication on my end because not having an office, blah, blah, blah. These are excuses, but he said, what the fuck, man? Can't you give credit to Laogan Ma, the, the Chinese chili sauce that is unquestionably one of the greatest things ever made for food condiments? And I never got the opportunity to explain the genesis of this. And he said something accurately. He's like, but on your menu, you're going to say... Benton's Country Ham from Madisonville, Tennessee, but you won't say this. And multiple things can be true. And by no means, we don't have a menu. And I would say that if given the opportunity, I hopefully would educate people. And I know Eddie knows that it's crucially important to me to educate people about all things that are Asian, even though I'm not Taiwanese. I love Taiwanese culture and food and the history behind it. I love, I want to learn more about it. And in terms of priority and food cultures, Asia is, you know, something that I want the world to know more about and we don't have to go to my priorities of my my regions but it's something <laughs> i want to know more about and to to learn more about several years ago i don't know close to a decade i remember buying a chili sauce at the chinatown market just because of the the face it's an amazing like can you describe the what laogan mom looks it's like a, it's a oily salsa it's crunchy chilies, and it's as though you took all of the ingredients that go into a hot sauce. You know, you steep all of your aromatics and your chilies in oil, and traditionally you would maybe strain that, and that's how you get chili oil, right? It's that, except for you don't strain it. <laughs> you eat all of the aromatics, all the chilies, all the garlic, all the alliums. Everything is crunchy and dark, and it's just, you know, it looks a little bit, and we'll get into all of this with Eddie. It looks like a salsa yeah. matcha. It looks, it's an edible, crunchy chili sauce. 
So I, I just want to give everyone the genesis, and then when Eddie comes on, we'll, we'll rap about it. But that was my first version of that. Have I had oily chili sauces before in Chinese restaurants? Yes. Do you have versions of that in Korean culture? No, with the exception of some dumplings, but those dumplings come from China anyway. So hold that thought. And then when I tasted it, I was like, this is fucking insane. This is so good. But yeah, it's pervasive. And in, in Japan, you got Taburu Ryu, you know, like which maybe came from the popularity of Laganma. I'm, I'm excited to to unpack all of this <laughs> with Eddie. And maybe, maybe did you did you grow up eating it? I didn't encounter it until maybe I was in my early 20s or something. It was one of those things, Chang, and maybe this is your experience of it too, or, or maybe you saw it in Chinese restaurants earlier than this, but like it was one of those chef's secrets <laughs> for yeah, a while. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like but I never chef. saw it. I never saw it in restaurants. I only saw no. it at the supermarket. And it's something that I, I, I was like, oh, it's got MSG in it. I love it. Right. It was one <laughs> of those things. And so again, I just want to give a brief history genesis. And this is sort of how I think about food. There's an obnoxiously titled essay in Wired a few years back called The Unified Theory of Deliciousness. If you want to punch me in the face, I'm happy to set up a time. Because <laughs> fuck, man. That's a goddamn obnoxious, self-righteous, stupid-ass title. But it explains some of how I, I, I try to like come up with dishes or view dishes and, and food because it's more important to me to pay respect to culture by sometimes moving it in different ways. And in something like Lao Ma, I just don't think you can make it better. It's like, I'm not going to make QP better, mayo better. I'm not going to make Heinz 57 ketchup better. I'm not going to make Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce better. There's certain things that are just like benchmarks. So that was one. And going back in 2006, when we started Sambar, and then when we started to do the Bosoms and then the Ducks and all these larger formats, Early on, whether people remember it or not, we had like a chili oil type of thing. And it was like a puree of chilies, but it wasn't crunchy, but it was oily because it's similar to when I go to Peking Gourmet Inn in, in, in Virginia, and they have this sick chili sauce. This so It's so good. And it's a little bit vinegary, and it's oily. Fast forward to when we were working with Kraft Heinz to come up with some sauce. I saw that boom of sriracha and I was like, fuck man. Like <laughs> what was it about sriracha that was similar? And then we spent a lot of time in our lab and we literally spent a lot of time being like, Oh, it like Tabasco. It's shelf stable and vegan. And then it was, what are shelf stable vegan hot sauces? There's only two in our research, mm-hmm. Chinese chili oil, gochujang like what we make at our restaurants, like some kind of gochujang. So that was it. And we had both of those as condiments. And if I was going to choose one to popularize, I was going to choose gochujang because I'm Korean. And I'm not going to speak on behalf of Chinese people as much as I love it. Gochujang is to me ketchup. I mean, not ketchup, tomato paste. You can't just sell gochujang. Because this is how fast, again, we talked about this, the world moves. We're talking about 2010, when I was like, or even 12, when I was like, you know what? We can't call it gochujang. People won't even know how to spell it. They're going to say, oh, it's too fucking weird. We're going to call it sam, sam sauce. And that's what we went to production with. There was a healthy debate of, do we just sell the chili oil? Do we do something like that because it's vegan and shelf stable? That's it. There are a bunch of hot sauces outside of, um, and they're not the only ones, mind you, but they're the ones that I could make. And there are a bunch of other ones throughout Asia, but they're not shelf-stable or they're not vegan. So that was it. And we went with some sauce instead of that. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to, uh, I think, the third Mad. It was the one after I used Thick and Easy from upstairs in that restaurant when we were doing the dinner. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was the one after that. And... Rosio, I was cooking with Rosio because uh, pre-mad, we, we pair up with the other chefs and you make a, like a family meal for everybody. And Rosio brought all these beautiful chilies from Mexico. And I was like, I'm going to make a chili sauce. And I just toasted a bunch of them and I pureed it with sugar, MSG, and soy sauce. And I added a little bit of rice wine vinegar. Oh, it wasn't rice. It was like elderflower vinegar or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And I was cooking with uh, Tatiana Levha and, uh, and her husband, Bernard. Bertrand. Chef of Bertrand, excuse me, Bertrand. 
<laughs> and like I, I, I think Tatiana was throwing a couple things in there, and we were just like, because you're given a basket, it's almost like chopped, right? Oh, I remember. Yeah, you and I were in that tiny kitchen. Yeah, and I was like, "What the hell is?" He? You were like, "Go make a." Ch-. You you were like, "Go make chili oil," and I was like, "Dave, trust me to make chili oil." And I walked in the kitchen, and then you were standing right behind me. I was like, "Oh, thank God." <laughs> <laughs> but remember, like you're given like a like shit that you're supposed to work with. Yeah. Or because we're in Denmark and we were so late, because you know, by the th- we've done this, we have a whole theory about how we do this family meal, like. I don't want the huge animal cuts. I don't want fish. You want shellfish or something that you don't have to really worry about. Because, like, you have nothing to work with. You don't want to break down a pig. It's a pain in the ass. Anyway, by the time we got to the table, because it's like like a cutthroat competition, not a surprise. None of the Europeans took the soy sauce and chilies. <laughs> so that's all we had left. And I was like, oh, we got to do something this. And, and I think we had fish and, and Bertrand took care of the fish. I was going to take care of the sauce. And I think you and Tatiana took care of the veg, but I asked you to make the chili, whatever. We'll we'll set that up. And we had the Thermomix and I started to toast the chilies. There was like a variety of chilies in the Thermomix. They had the chilies because Rosio brought them. Anyway, and then I'm adding all these ingredients and then I tasted it and I'm like, wow, that's fucking really good. And then Rosio tasted it and she says, oh, that tastes like uh, salsa matcha. And I was like, what the fuck is salsa matcha? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, like, I just made, I just threw this shit together with some Danish ingredients, <laughs> some Mexican chilies, and some like uh, bad, bad European soy sauce <laughs> and MSG. <laughs> and I remember it's always the thing where it's just like, what are those? Because you and I always team up for this pre med potluck lunch and like it's always like what are those asian guys doing again we were in this cramped kitchen everyone's sharing a space dave is like blitzing this thing and like a plume of like hellish spicy vinegary vapor comes out of this thing it just like this cloud like fills this entire tiny kitchen where people are i don't know whatever they're doing they're doing all their like crazy european techniques while dave is like uh (laughs) making a, a, a psychotically spicy chili oil in 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 the blender here uh I have such a fond memory of that. So, like, that's when I was like, oh, and then I learned what salsa matcha was, which is a relatively recent invention, like culinary invention. Mm-hmm. And then move forward to Ugly Delicious. All the while, we're, we're testing chili oils in the lab. We've had varieties of it. And then uh, we're filming the taco episode, and we're at Eastside King. I look into a bowl of the salsa, and it looks like savory granola. And I'm like, what is this? And it's a little bit oily. It's got sesame, pepitas, a variety of uh, of chopped up chilies, dried chilies. And um, there were a few other ingredients. And I taste, I put it, it was like a, it was like furikake almost, but not. It was like an oily furikake, but not oily, but like just enough to like hold it together. And I put it on my taco and I'm like, I'm sorry, what what is this? And they're like, oh, that's salsa seca. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but what's salsa seca? And she tells me, and I do some homework. And again, like, I, it needs to be verified, but they're like, oh, a lot of these ingredients came from not Mexico. Like, it was from immigrants that sort of helped shape salsa seca. We should talk to a uh, food historian to double check on that because it is another modern invention. And I was like, oh, this all is based around the chili, too. And it's a dry salsa. That's what it translates to. And it was amazing because it gave texture and crunch. And I was like, this is a lot like Laogan Ma. So I was like, okay, all the while I can't make Laogan Ma, right? The labs changed hands over time. And now we have JJ, we have Audrey. And it was like, okay, how do we merge salsa seca with the salsa matcha with the excellence of Lao Gamma because the last thing we wanted to do was to sell Lao Gamma. Mm-hmm. And we did a totally different, what we feel is a different version. I think it tastes very different than Lao Gamma. I'm sure that it could be seen as, oh, this is what it is. But I just want to say unequivocally, it is a homage and a blend of salsa seca, salsa matcha, and Lao Gamma. And that, that's the whole history we can talk about it later with Eddie, but we wanted to make sure the ingredients were all different and unique. It may look similar, but it's very different. And that's something that is who I am as I express myself via food, right? It's it, I've done that historically. 
We have the pula chili. We have chili de arbol. We have the Japones chili. We have shiitake mushroom powder, red bell pepper powder for the color, which is not being used. We have sesame seeds, again, to give us a little bit more of that seca vibe. We have coconut sugar for the sweetness, seaweed, umami base, you know, crispy shallots. Like all of these things are neither here nor there in any of these. Yes, there are one or two ingredients. And we felt that when we made the Venn diagram, I was like, this is unique. This is different. It tastes like one thing, but it also tastes like this. People could see it as one thing, but it's not. And I was like, this is what we can do. And we can be proud about it. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying at all not to use any three of these things. But uh-huh. I think it's weirdly, uniquely different than all three of them. You've tasted it. It's a different condiment. And, and I really like it. I'm not trying to shill for it. I really like Lao Gamba. I like, I, I like both of them on separate terms. I'm, a, I'm somebody who has like 55 different chili sauces in my fridge for like different occasions. And, and <laughs> But, you know, this is all to say, when I saw Eddie's criticism he posted on Instagram, you know, my first reaction was, I, I feel defensive for you. I'm always kind of like, no, no, no. Dave, Dave is thoughtful about this. Dave, you know, he deserves the benefit of the doubt. But I think his criticism is valid, which was essentially like, Hey, on your menus, you you pay homage and you make sure you mention the provenance of, of a lot of things. But how come this Asian condiment, this immigrant import doesn't get the same treatment? And I think that's the thing we want to talk to him about. And I think it's a valid enough argument that you're inviting him on to, to talk about it. And, and uh, I, that, that, the, the reality is I am reserving it because it's a much larger story that you can't put on a menu. And I have... No reason to hide in talking about this because ultimately my goal is to say, please buy all of these things. Please learn about salsa matcha. Please mm-hmm. learn about salsa seca so your mind can be blown just like mine was. All of these things are delicious. There's a reason why we made it expensive. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't want to even compete with the price of Lao Gamma because, like, it's different ingredients. It costs different. So, I, I just wanted people to know that, like, I... I appreciate Eddie calling me out, but I just wanted to tell him in person, and we will, because I just want to catch up with him in general. It was nothing but massive respect. And you heard my sort of long-winded sort of but brief story as to why. Yeah. Uh, Eddie just emailed. He's getting on now. We're in three minutes. (laughs) So uh, we'll have Eddie here to talk to us in, in just a second. Well, that was our first part of our conversation with uh, Eddie Huang, who isn't here yet. But on Monday, you will listen to the second part where Eddie calls in from Taipei. And man, we have one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. And on top of it all, it makes me so goddamn jealous that he's living it up. And I'm glad that anyone anyone anywhere is able to live life a little bit more normal um that makes me feel good for them and it makes me wildly jealous but stay tuned for that one it's a good one give us five stars however you rate this podcast keep on sending questions into askdave at majordomamedia.com you can give us questions on our itunes pod page if you give us five stars and send in a question we will do that we're going to try to do mailbags more often And uh, appreciate it, guys. Stay safe, everybody. Have a good weekend.